Section 28 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Volume 3, Chapter 1. The Lost Heirloom. After the startling and ghastly discovery and disclosure which had been made by the noble dog Monk, the inborn instinct of the dog thus showing itself in its way, as it not seldom does, more than a match for the intelligence of man, to say that the shock which the perhaps somewhat delicate phlegmatic physical and mental organization of the negro-born Jules Massey sustained at the ghastly disinterment of the remains, to say that Jules Massey was well-nigh as down-stricken as when only a very few months before, on the fatal night of the murder, he was when he had been the discoverer of his late murdered master's body, would perhaps be no exaggeration of the fact. For some minutes, as Jules stood on the jutting rocky crag beneath which the body lay, the dark man was like one rooted to the ground, while the great and noble dog was all the while using his utmost exertions to unearth and free the corpse from its surrounding mass of dirt and rocky debris and drifted snow. With feet and teeth he scratched and tore with all his not insignificant strength, then with the warmth of his own body, or licking the dead man's face and hands, again would he labor, with the wondrous instinct so deeply seated in his nature, to reanimate, to cause the warm blood again to course through that now cold frame of the dead, and then, standing his forepaws on the dead body of his late master, would he throw back his great head in the air and give expression to his desire by, at intervals, venting it in long, loud, deep-mouthed bays, or, like as he did on the night of the murder, one long-drawn melancholy howl, which echoed weird and strangely through the deep still woods and rocky glens, now slumbering so noiselessly and silently, so motionless beneath their unsullied pall of spotless untrodden snow. For some minutes Jules Massey gazed at the spectacle before his eyes, then, without attempting to touch or remove the body, without even calling off the dog, with that same sickness of heart which he had experienced on the discovery of the murder, and which the more tender-hearted and inexperienced of us feel at the sight of some horrid form of death, Jules Massey turned away. Perhaps there are those who would say that Jules Massey was a coward, and perhaps at that moment he was, for there are circumstances which are so full of dread that they make cowards of us all. And perhaps, too, cowardice, like heroism, is an anomalous thing, for perhaps cowardice as the world names it is bold. And while there are soldiers, for the soldier is supposed to be the personification of heroism, who would not flinch or fear in the midst of battle, in the belching flame and thunder of artillery, of death and ruin and carnage, yet would shrink from the perpetration of a dastard act or the utterance of an unholy word, and whose fearless heart would quail before a woman's reproach or be melted by a child's tear. So, without attempting to remove the body of his late master, without approaching nearer to it than the crag above it on which he stood, Jules Massey turned away. He floundered and struggled again up through the snow-covered woods, 
now more than waist-deep in some accumulated drift, now thrown lengthways on his face as he blundered over some snow-hidden boulder or obstacle which lay concealed beneath the snow in his path, groaning in the very utter discomfort of his body, and overwhelmed in the agony of his soul. At last he reached where he struggled on to a more familiar footing, and in the vicinage of the mausoleum was on surer ground. Then on past the dower house, he sometimes ran, sometimes floundered, blundered, and fell, then down the hilly road, either by running or falling, making the best of his way, till he came to where, in the direction from the mansion, opposite to David Blackman's chalet, some laborers were hewing timber in the woods, and to these men he imparted what he had seen, directing them to go direct and inform Mr. Price, whose residence was some distance away, and who was, as already stated, factor on the estate. Of course, the news of the recovery of the body of the late master of Vernwood flew far and wide and on every tongue. Meanwhile, as fast as the horse's legs which that morning brought him to Vernwood would take him back from whence he came, Jules Massey returned to the town, and then, as fast as electric wires could be made to convey the message, Mr. Lumley was informed that the late Bertram Gonneau's body had been found. Jules Massey spent another unhappy night in the country inn, and by the following afternoon he was joined by Mr. Lumley from London, accompanied by Colonel Vandermeulen and Dr. Sirius Wells. And then Jules Massey related to them the whole ghastly minutiae of what had taken place. Without further delay, through a warmth of atmosphere which was as genial as that of spring, and which converted the ground beneath their horses' feet, which the day before was deep snow, into depths of yellow mud, and caused the drippings of melting snow to fall like a shower of great drops of rain from the overhanging branches of the trees, the four men again drove over to Vernwood with all speed. The carriage passed into the grounds, and then over the Ionic Bridge, and away up to the mausoleum. Some men, laborers on the estate, those who had known and loved Bertram Gonneau in life, were loitering about the place. But on every face there had settled that sad, blank, downcast, woe-begone air, a spirit of inexpressible gloom and sadness seemed to reign throughout that death-haunted grove. In reply to questions from Mr. Lumley, as they drove up to the circular enclosure, the loiterers pointed to the building of the mausoleum. They pointed, for their hearts were too full to express such sentiment in words. The entrances to the mausoleum chapel were opened or unfastened, and then silently, reverently, the London lawyer followed the two detectives, and Jules Massey, with a feeling almost of revulsion, entered the beautiful and renovated fane. All within, without, around, was as perfectly the place of cleanliness and renovation and order as, before its restoration, it had been the charnel-house of unhealthy vapors and unclean beasts, and all that was too loathsome even for the proximity even of death. And there, on a raised, improvised catafalque, which Mr. Price had caused to be hurriedly erected before the altar, in the same coffin in which he had previously been interred, but now cleansed of the dirt and mire, in the fine linen and spotless napery of the grave, 
rested the remains of what was once Bertram Gonneau. With a melancholy, with a depressing gloominess of soul which cannot be expressed, Mr. Lumley and his companions gazed once more on the resting face of the dead. Whether it was the preservative influence of the atmosphere, those sunless weeks and cold days during which Bertram Gonneau had lain in the grave, whether it was the partial process of embalming which the body had undergone almost immediately after death, or whether it was the inexorable hand of that providence or fate which seems in one form or another ever to point to the assassin's trail, we cannot tell. But whatever it may be, the face and features of the dead, of Bertram Gonneau, as he lay there in death, were strangely, wonderfully, almost fearfully unchanged from their aspect in life. There was the intellectual face, the sparse locks of hair, the well-trained mustaches, the scar on the right cheek, indelible even in death. And as the incredulous American detective gazed silently, and for once awe-stricken on that face, he perhaps for the first time, then and not till then, believed that Bertram Gonneau was actually dead. The long, white, bony hand rested across the bosom of the dead, shrunken perhaps, but apparently as yet almost untouched by what is perhaps the most loathsome influence on humanity, that abhorrent influence of decay which tells us so plainly that we are but dust. A silence that was awful and impressive seemed to pervade and bow down the spirits of the four men, as side by side they stood over that restful bier. And then suddenly, as if moved by some thought which arose in his mind, Mr. Lumley turned to Jules Massey. When he lay in the hall of the mansion, before burial, had he not on the ring? Mr. Lumley asked. That was so, Mr. Lumley, Jules Massey replied. That was so. I know it was so and as Jules Massey spoke, his eyes welled over with tears, hot burning tears. Then what became of it? Was it buried with the corpse? Dunno, Mr. Lumley, suppose it must have been buried when Massa was. Jules replied in the same sorrowful, choking tone. We may mention here that Jules Massey, at the time immediately succeeding the murder, although in custody as a suspect only, but not a convict, had, by his own desire and Mr. Lumley's influence and intercession, when his late master lay in state, as we have described in the great Vernwood Hall, been, by the police authorities, permitted the favor of looking a last look on his late master's face. Indeed, Jules Massey's great desire to be allowed this favor had, in the eyes of many impartial judges, a strong appearance in his favor in the case. When these few words, which in an undertone passed between Mr. Lumley and Jules Massey, fell upon and were overheard by the quick ear of Colonel Vandermeulen, who was standing near them, perhaps neither the one nor the other, perhaps neither Jules Massey nor Mr. Lumley, remarked the quick, bright ray of intelligence, which flitted across, we may say lit up, the almost stupid heavy stolidity of the New York detective's Dutch or German face, for it was a face which the light of intelligence seemed to so ill become, that all brightness sat upon it with an unbecoming, it seemed almost an unwelcome grace. 
Having viewed the chapel and the dead, the four visitors proceeded then to the spacious vaulted chamber beneath. Like the mortuary chapel above, the vaulted catacombs beneath were now beautified by no untasteful hand. Around the walls in their niches could be seen deposited the coffins of the dead. But now in a suitable position, hewn from a block of costly Perean marble, fresh and new from the sculptor's hand, stood one, the one untenanted urn, one sarcophagus, the most beauteous resting place of all, lay open and uncovered, its richly hewn lid upraised, awaiting the reception of its coming occupant in death. We need not particularize, we need not write minutiae here, it must be enough that we follow the general thread and tenor of our tale. But all that, and part of the following day, Mr. Lumley remained at or about or in the vicinity of Vernwood, in a sorrowful, serious mood, superintending its affairs. And then at last, the final ceremony, in the presence of the lawyer and those who accompanied him, and a few others, was performed. From the mortuary chapel, where it had lain since its discovery by the dog monk, the body in the oaken coffin was again removed to the solemnity and silence of the spacious chamber beneath, and committed to its final resting place on earth in its costly marble urn, and there let us hope to rest till that day and hour which, as a thief in the night, shall come when knoweth no man, and shall echo through the world the blast of that mighty trump, which we are told shall sound to the awakening even of the very dead, and till the coming of that day they laid to rest the mortal remains of Bertrand Honor Gonneau. Four sad, silent, sorrowing men, Mr. Lumley, Sirius Wells, Vandermeulen, and Jules Massey, immediately after the final disposal of the dead, returned to town. Each heart seemed too deeply weighed down, too deeply impressed with the incidents of the last few days, to be exuberant of words. The day had long closed when they alighted at that metropolitan terminal station of that which is the great modern iron road of travel from western English shires. And here they parted, Mr. Lumley to that richly appointed mansion which the great conveyancing lawyer condescended to honour by the name of home, one of those massively constructed houses at Lancaster Gate, Jules Massey returned to lodgings in the small house of which in the locality there are few small houses, between Oxford Street, Park Lane, and Grosvenor Square, while Colonel Vandermeulen went to a small hotel in Westbourne Grove, there, in the fresh light that had come to him, to review, if it were possible, to comprehend, to draw into the one focus of his brain the divergent rays of so unintelligible and weighty a case. End of section 28